Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. My very special guest, old friend today is Bob Brokesmith. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to do it, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you bet, buddy. For those who don't know, Bob is the president and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, of course, the MBA. He's a senior finance exec, corporate officer with a 30-year, well, 33-year career in the mortgage sector. He's basically led all aspects of lending activities, including marketing, sales, operations, secondary marketing, default management. And prior to the MBA, which I believe was in 2018, Bob had senior leadership positions at prestigious companies such as Treliant, Chevy Chase Bank, BF Sol, both companies I loved. I thought they were great. I think they're obviously related. Prudential Home Mortgage, Great Western Mortgage, Krupp Residential Mortgage, and The Money Store. Lastly, Bob has served as the chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association Residential Board of Governors, ResBog, as a member of its board of directors. And lastly, Bob enjoys a prestigious designation of being a certified mortgage banker. All right, Bob, how'd I do? Is that summing up good? Beautifully, yes. You, yes, you read that just like I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. All right, Al, quick, Bob, before, before we get started, you know, if you've got a minute, I suspect you have a minute real quick. I do, yes. Hey, uh, so as you recall, you know, you might recall, I was recruited for your job in 2017 or 2018. I'm trying to figure out, maybe you can answer, do you think I didn't get the job because either A, I disagreed with major policies of the Mortgage Bankers Association at that time, or is it just generally because I was underqualified? There's no wrong answer. I'm just curious. Well, you know how Mitch McConnell's been talking about how candidate quality matters in the midterms? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a burn. No, it's, burn. It's, no <laughs> it's interesting because because the um, the group that was considered for this role, as you rightly say, in 2018 when I joined MBA, no one has ever put a list together on a piece of paper, sort of dribbles out over time. So it's always interesting, these conversations that come up. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, I felt like uh, in the boardroom, like it was a Bruce Lee movie with me being attacked by 30 people at once. It was really entertaining. Yeah, that was a long table, a very long <laughs> conference table. That was a long table. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. Hey, okay. So, I mean, leading into the, uh, the easy stuff, <laughs> I mean, the mortgage and real estate markets are wild, uh, to say the least. You've got uh, originations now down by probably two thirds when they were probably this time last year. You've got financial requirements and expenses to be in the mortgage business, particularly if you're an IMB, they're spiking. Servicing is challenging, whether you're keeping the MSRs or selling them off. And I, I guess like many, expect fair lending, MRAs and lawsuits coming out of the CFPB probably within the next three months or so, just thinking about the, uh, the gestation period of these things. So I guess my question to you, Bob, would be, do you think that like politicians and lawmakers, do they understand the magnitude of these issues and the implications? And I, I would probably emphasize, especially the IMB issues and their contributions to housing policy. Well, I think that that's a, an important and continuing role for the MBA is to educate policymakers on how the mortgage industry works. And I suppose nobody can be in a job like mine without being somewhat of a name dropper. So I'll tell you that 
um, I, along with some other trade association executives, met with the administration just two weeks ago in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. And part of our message was that most mortgages, you know, uh, MBA represents both banks and credit unions as well as non-depositories, but most mortgages today are made by non-banks, are made by IMBs. And while some in this town know that really well, others are perpetually surprised when we make that point. And the important connection is that I don't think it's because banks don't like making mortgages. I think it's largely because a lot of the policies promulgated by regulators in Washington have driven banks out of the mortgage business, not least of which was the ridiculous False Claims Act zeal from uh, for FHA loans and the the really enormous settlements that were extracted out of a lot of players in the industry and and let's face it every institution in lending has a risk management group and a board of directors and you can quantify the risk of making an individual mortgage but how do you quantify the risk of the government coming after you in a very public way for for really enormous sums of money. And then the capital requirements of being in the mortgage business and more to the point, holding mortgage servicing rights are really onerous. What we say is the IMBs really gained in prominence and market share when the government effectively drove banks out of having the dominant share in mortgage lending. And don't do to the IMBs what you did to the banks, because who in the world is going to come after them and make all these mortgages that are so critical to our country? Exactly. Yeah, no, I always wonder, is like, do policymakers ever ask the question like, huh, I wonder why the heck the banks did get out of the business? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I mean, as you said, you have, you have risks that you, you can't mitigate because you really don't know what they're going to be. And even if you could identify them, you can't price for the risks at the risk of uh, having the the wrath of the CFPB in terms of UDAP, disparate impact, disparate treatment, and so on and so forth. It's, it's quite the enigmatic sort of situation. I don't think the administration, it's not necessarily just this administration, that folks are being as thoughtful and intellectually honest about the problem. And of course, what happens, you know, fill in the blank calamity occurs, wh what's the fallback? Right. And, and you mentioned fair lending. And let me just be really clear that I personally, but much more important, we at the MBA fully expect all lenders, all of our members to be rigorously reviewed for fair lending compliance. That is a really important part of the job we're all privileged to do, which is providing home ownership and affordable rental opportunities to Americans of all walks of life. And we expect to be reviewed for that. What we don't expect and can't manage is for there to be novel theories of discrimination and really punitive reviews of our members' lending that lead to demands for completely unrealistic uh, settlements and mitigation and the attendant reputational risk that that brings. So we care a lot about this issue. You've heard me, Tim, talk a lot about the racial home ownership gap and how important it is, all the steps we're trying to take to reduce it. But fair lending enforcement that 
has no relation to the perceived mistakes of a lender is just something that will be really chilling to the industry. Yeah, no, I think you said that perfectly in terms of the novel theories of discrimination. Uh, one of the subtle things that I saw probably, I think it was earlier this year, was when um, the CFPB actually changed their exam manual to include uh, racial discrimination as a UDAP violation. So it's like, wait a minute, it's not just the DOJ and HUD that are enforcing these things and all of the relevant case law associated with those infractions, whatnot, are basically thrown out the window because there really isn't much case law related to that from a UDAP perspective. You could go as novel as you want. And I actually just saw one yesterday. It was two days ago, something from the CPB where they rightfully, it sounds like wrote up, did an MRI, MRA, I believe, to um, some sort of a payday lender sort of thing. And one of the things they wrote them, on, wrote them up for was inappropriate font size in a notification. <laughs> like, oh boy, now we're down to font size and style. Boy, they. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Director Chopra, and I'd say this to him if he and I were talking directly as well, has said that that's giving the industry an appropriate heads up and being transparent about what they're doing. Others would say, yeah, there's a process for changing that called the Administrative Procedures Act, and you got to go through a notice and comment period and get public input on that so that the way you do things are institutionalized in the appropriate way. And frankly, for their own edification, they are more durable. If you do something by rulemaking, it takes another rulemaking to change it. So if you really want to change things in a durable way, plus their legal requirements, you know, use the Administrative Procedures Act and the notice and comment period. The trouble is that takes time and effort. And when an agency director is in for a fixed term, if one wants to get a lot done, it's easier to push the envelope and see if people sue you and then see how the courts decide it rather than going through the what I think they would consider the plotting process of the Administrative Procedures Act. But it's up to us at MBA and, and others in the industry to challenge regulators when we believe that they've overstepped their bounds or, or done things that we don't believe are authorized by statute. I totally agree. I, I have a whole rant on that very topic. So I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version of it, which was something to the effect of, you know, you have rulemaking now that not only is it not based in statute, not based on the Administrative Procedures Act, it's casually done by things like RFIs, blog posts, speeches, all these things like, my goodness. I mean, so not only are they not durable, but they're also oftentimes uncoordinated with other agencies and oftentimes further working at cross purposes with other agencies because you haven't gone through that vetting process as you described. Right. And and one of the unfortunate results of some of these topics we're discussing is that the cost to originate alone just keeps going up and up and up. Our most recent figures were, I think, $10,400 or some really high number. And you might say, well, okay, there's a cost to compliance, but guess who bears the cost? I mean, lenders 
lenders are privileged to be in this industry and there's a lot of, of public good we do, but they also have to make a profit or they won't exist. So these costs get passed on to consumers and I'm just unconvinced that the value they receive for these added costs is there. Yeah, it definitely flows through. And I'm I'm fond of saying it's not patriotism that compels companies to use these government programs or to be in the mortgage business. It is capitalism at the end of the day, <laughs> to your earlier point, if you can't identify the risks and mitigate those risks, then I just assume not taking those risks. Right. All right. Well, thanks for all of that. I think I'd probably pivot to Bob. You know, I, I just realized that I'm in my gulp 30th year in the mortgage business. And I suspect, actually, I know you've been dragging around HP 12C for probably a couple of years longer than even me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got scotch tape over the battery thing because it <laughs> fell out, but I still do drag it around. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I think it's three or four batteries uh, still, those little round um, batteries. Yeah. So, you know, along those lines, I mean, if you weren't running the MBA, what do you think you'd be doing? Would it be in the mortgage industry, some other industry? That's a good question, Tim. I, as you mentioned, I've certainly run mortgage lenders and really enjoyed doing it. But I must say that it holds less appeal for me now. The, the nature of the business is so much more tied to compliance and, and checkers checking the checkers. It used to be that we would compete on service and and try to grow our market share by by offering a better experience than the next guy. And of course, that still exists, but there's so much risk mitigation and compliance and reputational risk concerns that, I don't know, I, I'm not sure it's as fun as it used to be. So I don't think I'd be running a <laughs> mortgage company if I weren't doing this. And And there was a point in my life when, before politics were quite as polarized as they are. And before running for office mostly meant raising money 365 days a year, where the thought of holding elective office held some appeal to me. And I still, it, it, the part of my job that, that has me going to Capitol Hill and meeting with lawmakers, I still, my heart skips a beat every time I get near that Capitol Dome. I think it is the word awesome is overused, but that is an awesome site. And for a guy like me who grew up in a farm town in central Illinois to have a role like this where I interact with the people making laws for our entire great country, I mean, even now talking about it, I get a, <laughs> I get a little misty. So I do think that you know how life is life presents opportunities and sometimes the timing is right and sometimes it's not so i don't think that's in my future but that's certainly something that that has a place in my heart and one way that i stay close to it you may, you may get a chuckle out of this i live in chevy chase maryland and it's kind of a bucolic little town and we have a little village hall we have about 700 houses in the in the village and I'm an election judge, and I've done it for, I don't know, 25 years probably. And so for the primaries and then the general election every two years, I go and help make sure that the wheels of democracy spin correctly. It's not a partisan role. I make sure people understand how to vote, not which candidates to support, but how to, you know, how to get the voting machine to work and 
give them their I voted sticker and make sure they're registered appropriately and all that stuff. And I, I, of course, it's a, a, a way of giving to my community, I suppose, but I get way more out of it and think that it's a, it's a really important part of our role as citizens. And, and, uh, you won't be able to reach me on election day this year because I'll be in, in, in the Chevy <laughs> Chase polling booth making sure that things go smoothly. Well, thank you for your service, Bob. Sure. <laughs> that does remind me. There is there is something, I don't know, awe-inspiring, um, exciting about going to the West Wing or going to the Hill. I remember speaking at the the Dirksen Senate office building. That was cool. <laughs> that was really right. cool. So I get it. There's no way in a holy whatever that I'd ever want to be a politician these days. But yeah, I get it. There's something about it. Maybe I'll, I'll take it from a different angle. I was thinking about this just before we got on, like I've probably known you for, I don't know, 15 years or so, something like that. And mm-hmm. I was trying to visualize, it's like, I, I can't visualize Bob, like waiting tables at a hard rock cafe or repossessing <laughs> cars with your bio, you're graduating from Yale and the big jobs that you had. Is there like a hardship story buried in there? Like what was the worst job you ever had? Was it, was it something like busing tables or anything like that? Was there just you know. Well, sure. I mean, I I started delivering papers at age nine and did that all the way through high school while simultaneously working my way from dishwasher to busboy to waiter at a local no halfway decent dining establishment and always had a term time job at Yale. And in fact, was just talking to our daughter last night, who's a sophomore at Yale, and she said that she's got a a new job where she gets to work with the curator at one of the museums and at Yale. And I think it's great to do that while you're studying. And But but to answer your question directly, the worst job I think I <laughs> had, uh, because those to me were all means toward an end. I was saving for college and I had a goal in mind and it was all part and parcel of that. But like anyone who's been in the mortgage business, and the truth is it's 37 years now for me, if you've been in the mortgage business, it's almost impossible that you haven't been between engagements, as we say, from time to time. And God knows there's a lot of mortgage people now who are between engagements as we go through all this displacement of trying to get the capacity to match the demand in our business. And at one point, I found myself living in Boston, my previous employer having given up on the mortgage business, and I took a temporary job. And my assignment was to take reams of medical bills and type into a 10 key adding machine all of the numbers so that (laughs) the collection agency who was the employer could then have people call and harass people for their medical bills. And the trouble was I was really good at a 10 key adding machine and I got through my batches faster than anybody. So they wanted me to Stay there. I was like, oh my God, I can't get out of here fast enough. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I was actually prescient. You nailed the hard rock example from the restaurants and close enough repossessing cars, you know, debt, <laughs> yeah, exactly. debt, debt collection. So I, I'd, I'd say I get a cowbell on that. That was, uh, that was a you, absolutely. <laughs> head, head nod to Mark Zandi and his fabulous podcast that he does. Oh, wow. Is that <laughs> I was thinking about this. I was talking to a loan officer friend. Granted, this is even a worse market. I was like, but brother of mine, I was like, I was a loan officer in 1994. 
I closed three loans that year, two in December. That was a oh, no. <laughs> and I would I tried to bribe the Washington Post uh, news guy who was making deliveries to stuff it full of flyers. Guy had too much integrity. Damn him. So I showed him. <laughs> I, I laced up my running shoes and every morning I would jog behind him. And every time he put down a news through a newspaper out his window, I would stuff a flyer in it. And it was only because of that, uh, that I got three loans that year. So yeah, it's, uh, wow. That was, uh, that was a lot of, that was a lot of ramen that year. huh? <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of, a lot of ramen. Yes, indeed. Anyway. So yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks buddy. Uh, so, okay. Hard pivot. This is, I think, what got me sideways with most of the people at the NBA. So 14 years into conservatorship, the GSCs, of course, in a deal that I've fondly described as a deal the GSCs couldn't refuse and one they can't repay. Where do you think we are with GSE reform and where should we be? Well, this is a it's just a farcical situation. So the, the best way I've heard it described is that conservatorship was intended to be a timeout. Then you get things figured out and you get them, the agencies back on their firm footing. And somebody told me, yeah, my kid was two when the GSEs were put into conservatorship, and now he's 16. My two-year-old needed a timeout, but my 16-year-old <laughs> no longer needs a timeout. And there's some truth to that because it was never intended to be a long-term solution. But Washington being Washington, no major legislation gets done without there being a really strong impetus. I'll, I'll stop short of saying a crisis, but a really right. strong impetus to get something done. And, you know, we just saw it last week. The, the continuing resolution to fund the government was signed by President Biden when? The last day of the fiscal year, September 30th, right? Yeah. And so for GSE reform, and, and I'll, I'll mention this as Bob Brooksman as opposed to the head of the MBA, most rational American taxpayers would say, okay, we spent $180 billion or whatever the number is to rescue Fannie and Freddie, We've been paid back lots of billions more than that. How can it be that they still owe all that money? It, it's a kind of a nutty construct. But the fact is, we are not ready to have a mortgage system in this country that does not include government backing of a substantial portion of it. And if you were to take the GSCs out of conservatorship, as we were concerned was going to happen at the end of Calabria's term, at the end of the Trump administration, without a legislated explicit guarantee on the securities, who knows how the market would respond to a GSC loan where there's not a backstop to the Treasury or an explicit backing by the federal government. And absent that, and I think Director Thompson has made this clear in her testimony to Congress, it's kind of up to Congress how this thing gets resolved because they, they're going to plot along and recoup capital, and it'll take them years more to get enough capital under the capital rule to even consider being 
capitalized enough to exit conservatorship. But even then, until and unless Congress agrees on a guarantee, it's a non-starter because there's currently widely available fixed rate, relatively affordable, not as affordable as it was last year, but relatively affordable mortgage rates in all 435 congressional districts in this country. Who's going to screw with that when you don't know whether you might get it wrong and it's on your watch that that system falters? So I think we've got, I think our two-year-old who is now 16 is going to be in his or her 20s before we're out of this conservatorship would be my guess. Yeah, I'm afraid you're you're right. I mean, obviously, from a policy perspective, it's first do no harm. Um, yeah. I, I was joking um, long ago when this debate was really heated and, um, and top of mind for folks was, I mean, imagine running on the, uh, if you're a politician and you found the two people on the street who actually even know what a GSE is, you're like, what do you, what do you yeah, think? Exactly. Of, what, what do you think of those guys? And they're like, oh, oh, those guys. Oh yeah. They're, they're worse than the wall street guys because you know, they, they basically line their pockets with a government subsidy and blah, blah, blah. And the politician goes, okay, you want those guys, you know, kneecapped and, you know, wound down and all that. And they go, oh yeah, man, you betcha. Absolutely. And the politician goes, okay, great. Let me take you through how we're going to spend your $250 a month. And hey, don't think that that 10 or 15% in lost equity in your property isn't going to a good cause. I mean, this is shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? This is fine. We're, we're good. Leave it alone. No problem. To your point, money's, money's cheap and it's uh, available every day in every market. So unless you're a shareholder and I completely understand and respect their position on this. Yeah, there's not a lot of urgency. Not that right. Much. And Bob, one thing was that ahead, they, I, I was always, I'm, I'm drawn to this, this parallel, almost, a, I hate to call it a use case of the student loan market, but one of the, oh, um, one of the rationales for taking uh, over a nationalizing student lending was, you know, this is, I think Obama had one of the ways he was selling it was, look, if we take this thing over, we're going to be able to make, okay, wait for it probably like $65 billion over 10 years to which, you know, these days you laugh out loud. You're like the GSEs are making 55 to $60 billion a year. I mean, Oh, that pays a lot of bills. Well, and the student loan thing, as you well know, turned into an absolute debacle even before the forgiveness. Right. So Don't yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, that's a yeah, that's a topic for another conversation. That's like a fishing trip topic. That's big, meaty. Yeah. <laughs> so as we've we've already established that you know you've you've been around the industry in DC for a minute or two. As I mentioned to you before, you know I, I did a field guide last year on commercial success in Washington you know, for mortgage and real estate professionals. Can you think of like pearls of wisdom, advice? or even stories that really illustrate how this town works or doesn't work. And I use it in the context of, you know, companies trying to achieve commercial success or really to come here to mitigate risk to their company or the industry. And naturally it goes without saying yeah. they join the MBA and more pack and then they do what? <laughs> that was, that was right. Well, thank shameless, you for that. Shameless thank you for plug. that softball. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And I will just say that 
Morpac, one of the things I'm proud of in my now four years running MBA is that Morpac has grown really considerably. We're going to eclipse $3 million for this two-year electoral cycle, which is far higher than we've ever been. And I am in the position to see how that helps our members every day. Our relationships on both sides of the aisle in both the Senate and the House are really, really strong. And it means that we deliver much more effectively for our members. So absolutely, that is part of it, is joining MBA and contributing to MORPAC. I have one observation that I hope will be somewhat reassuring to your listeners. And that is that despite all of the rancor and the public disagreement between the parties, it is an extremely rare event when I meet one-on-one with an elected representative and I don't leave thinking, this is a good person who's trying to do what's right. Now, you, you may think that's crazy based on their personas on TV and stuff. And if somebody were filming the conversation, it might look completely different. But I am really heartened by how people, despite their philosophical disagreements, really are trying to get things done. And I don't see a lot of kooks running around on the hill. Now, I'll I'll give one disclaimer, I suppose, which is that most of the people I meet with are on the committees that matter most to our members. So Senate banking and House financial services and, you know, maybe the appropriation side and tax side a little bit. And perhaps the really fringy House members and senators, mostly House members, maybe aren't on those committees. So perhaps it's true that, you know, I'm not meeting with some of the more extreme ones, but I've been really heartened by that. And then what my advice for members would be is that you all need for the representatives and senators in the states where you do business. And, you know, of course, especially where you employ people, you need them to know you. They need to know how many people you employ in their district or their state, what sort of payrolls you have, what's a typical employee of yours make with and good benefits and opportunities to advance, and the sorts of economic stimulus that you provide through your employment, let alone all of the loans you're making in those areas. And, and so you should be meeting with, and it doesn't have to be in Washington because all of these representatives and senators have district offices. And so you need to be known to your senators and representatives. They are much more apt to be helpful to you and to our industry if they know who you are and have a relationship with you such that when there's an issue, whether it's something you want to stop, because often the best result in advocacy is stopping something bad from happening as opposed to making something good happen that they will take your call, and and by they, of course, it could be a senior staff person, and think about your point of view as the legislation winds its way through. And the best way, in my biased opinion, is for you all to be doing that on your own account and coordinating with us at MBA so that we know as we have these visits and we can facilitate the interactions. But that is much more effective than you would think. And when I meet with Uh, elected officials, and I have a member from that district or that state with me, the meeting goes so much better because as effective as I think MBA is, we're just the hired help, right? 
the members are the ones employing people in these districts, making loans, improving economic activity. And that really matters to your representatives, whether you agree with them philosophically or not, no matter which side of the aisle they're on. Yeah, I think that's great and, and, and great advice and actually pretty consistent with some of the things that we were suggesting, like to your point, you, you got to build alliances to get that sort of echo chamber going on. And you absolutely need to know your audience. That's probably one of the problems with DC is you think your audience is A, but it really is B who's pulling the strings. And by knowing your audience, I mean, you got to realize that everybody serves somebody. I think that's Bob Dylan lyric or something like that. Understand who they're serving and tell your way to your story in a way that's <laughs> that's that's in a manner that even the distracted and self-important, which I think you can attest is pretty much everyone in this town, that they get yeah. it, or better yet, they ask you to tell you more. And the, the biggest one, I think, from all of this, it's not the most uplifting one, is just realizing that success often requires just a literal metaphysical change in your perception of patience. <laughs> and you really even need to understand that, especially during the times when you think things are going well. You're like, oh my God, great meeting. Absolutely going to happen. Like, okay. That, yeah. that's, you know, you've, well, you've got to. Right. I mean, the thing you have to realize is that the minute you leave, somebody's going to walk into that office exactly. and advocate for the exact opposite. Exactly. And I had, there's a freshman senator we met with recently who said, and I thought it was a great question and one I hadn't heard before, actually. And it was a bit of an acknowledgement that, you know, while he was on the committee of jurisdiction, he didn't really know the issue very well. He heard it. He thought it, he heard, he heard our point of view. He thought it made sense. And he said, now, what would someone on the other side of this issue's argument be? And why does that not hold water? And I thought that was a great question. And I think that people should offer that perspective, whether they're asked or not, because somebody else Somebody who is on the other side of the issue will inevitably also seek an audience with that elected representative. And if you can anticipate their point of view and preempt it, say, well, here's what they're going to say, but here's why that's not valid. Then you've got an even better chance of prevailing. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. Um, unfortunately, um, in this town, there's a, not just a town, it's, it's unfortunately society there's really just this this dying art of disagreement and the art of persuasion or how to handle a contrary point of view is just, um, it's sadly lost and there's all kinds of negative implications to that. But a guy named Brett Stevens, at the, he's a New York Times columnist, does a great job of articulating that issue if anybody wants to look it up. He, he really does a marvelous job of kind of framing that, that sort of dilemma that we're dealing with in this market. At this point in time. Last thing I'll, I'll leave you with, Bob, and you should know if it's not already readily apparent to you, your team at the NBA thinks the world of you. I, I've heard nothing but incredibly positive feedback, morale, uh, notwithstanding market circumstances. So kudos to you for that. And I, I did hear someone refer to your style as a servant leader. I was trying to self-audit myself. I was like, huh, mine probably be more referenced as like, I don't know, absent and hands-off, but so I, I like yours better. <laughs> so what does it mean to be this servant leader? I mean, for people who are going through a very challenging market like this, what yeah. is it and what's the benefit? Well, perhaps surprisingly, this takes us right back to the beginning of our conversation and- Why and I didn't get my, the job? Huh? 
<laughs> well, well, it was more like why, let's say let's say why I did. How about that? <laughs> I like it. And I'm really gratified to hear that somebody would describe me that way because that is what I try to be in this role. And when I was interviewing for this position, I said that I use those words, and I said that the way that I would plan to run this association, and I hope the way I have, is that we're not advocating for Bob Brooksmith's priorities. I don't come in with a laundry list or even a short list of things that I think are the most important and should drive our advocacy. I listen to the members, and the members tell us, here are things that might be on somebody's list, but we either don't think they're that important or we don't think that that's something that MBA can influence the outcome of. Because sometimes there are things that are important, but they just think, okay, well, that's not in our lane or it's just never going to change or, you know, whatever it is. So being a servant leader to me means listening to what's important to our members who are out there in the trenches every day trying to serve this really noble mission that we all have of providing housing. And I think that they then can set the priorities and then we take that as our marching orders and on their behalf, not our own behalf, on their behalf, we fan out across this town and try to make things better for them so that they can make it better for the people whom they serve. And of course, not to get too personal with you, but being a servant leader is also has some religious undertones. And I'm a preacher's kid. And now in my ripe old age of 58, I've made up my own mind. And and there is a faith component to that, too. That's how I've tried to do this. And like I say, I'm gratified to hear that somebody thinks that's how it's going. Thanks so much for doing this, Bob. I mean, you're like I said in the beginning, and I I sincerely mean it, you're really doing a stand-up job. You've always been a class act. Obviously, um, smarter than the average bear. And, you know, I'd say for the industry without blowing smoke, I'm thrilled. And I think we're lucky to have you out there. Well, that means a lot to me, Tim. I appreciate it. And I love doing what I'm doing. And I appreciate your having me on. Oh, you bet, buddy. All right, man. Take care. We'll see you out there, hopefully in the flesh next time. I'll see you in um, Tennessee, Nashville next month, right? Sounds great. Take care. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.